Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women in the Word. My name's Amy Foster. It's always my privilege to be studying with you. This week, we are studying and spending some time in John chapter 18 and 19. It's a beautiful passage. We're going to enjoy unpacking it together. You know, years ago, my family had a group of dear friends that vacationed together every single summer. And I know we looked a bit like a traveling circus because it was four families who had 14 children collectively. And when we first started vacationing together, all of those 14 children were in baby strollers and car seats and pack and plays. And it was always controlled chaos, but it was always the sweetest fellowship time together. We shared great memories on those trips together. Well, years rolled by and we continued to take those trips and all the families experienced changing circumstances over those years. One year in particular, my family went through a divorce and we experienced a pretty significant financial um, reversal. And that year, our dear friends planned for the trip to be in Texas. We were going to meet at a resort in the Hill Country. They thought that would be easier for my family. It was actually going to be pretty hard, but we budgeted and we scrimped and we saved so that we could take that trip. And I remember vividly traveling to the resort and the check-in room was very, very crowded. And I made my way up to the desk and I put down the only credit card that I had in my new single name. And the reception lady looked at me and said, that's the only credit card we don't accept. And I tried really hard not to panic in that moment. I had no other credit card. I could visualize my three boys standing beside me with their backpacks ready to jump in the pool. I could also visualize the people standing around me feeling embarrassed for my circumstances and panic started welling up in me. And just at the right moment, I felt a hand on my shoulder and someone handed a credit card across to that reception woman. It was one of our friends. They had just arrived and seen what was happening and they just looked at me and said, it's okay, Amy, we'll take care of this. We just want you and the boys with us. I have trouble receiving help like that, so I immediately started making a plan. And my plan was, on the last morning of our stay, I knew that resort was gonna slide a bill under my hotel room door. And I planned to pick up that bill, figure out what the balance due was, run to an ATM, withdraw cash, and pay my friends back. But on the last day, the paper that slid underneath my door said across the bottom, paid in full, balance due zero. To this day, I have no idea which of those dear friends paid that bill for us. I have no idea what the total amount due was. All anyone would say to me was, we just wanted you and the boys with us. So they paid our way. God's plan from the beginning of time was to do something similar. God's plan was to gather together a group of people who would live with him in a worshiping community, people who would live loving God and worshiping God forever. God would create that community. He would call it the kingdom of God. Sometimes he refers to it as the family of God. Sometimes he refers to it as the church, the people who follow God living in loving community with him. But each person who would be in that family of God had a price on their head that they could not pay. Each person was enslaved to sin 
and the penalty for sin for each one of us was our very lives. It was death. But God had a plan. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God's plan was to send Jesus to pay the price on our head, to send Jesus to be the sin bearer for mankind. And Jesus wouldn't just pay the penalty for our individual sin. Jesus would overcome sin's penalty and sin's dominion for all time. That was God's plan. It was his plan from the very beginning. The plan of God explained in the word of God, accomplished through the Son of God. And nothing stops the plan of God. The church word we use to describe this is providence. The providence of God basically means God is completely in charge of his world. God directed all the energies and all the effort and all the events that went into creating the world. And God continues directing all the energies, the effort, and the event that's occurring in the world today, directing the world to God's determined end. God is hands-on managing the world. So what we have to recognize, and when we look at Jesus' life, is that the crucifixion is not God's backup plan. It's not his plan B. God is never scrambling, catching up, caught unaware by men putting Jesus on the cross. John will repeat the words four different times in these chapters to fulfill the scriptures, or he will say to fulfill the word. And he's letting us know, he's reminding us that God foretold everything that is happening here in these verses. And we're going to see men acting of their own free will, of their own agency. They're acting sinfully, they're acting selfishly, but in spite of their sin and their selfishness, the plan of God continues to unfold in the world. So where are we in the story? Last week, we uh, read about Jesus' arrest late at night on Thursday night, and he was taken to Annas and to Caiaphas for a questioning. That was basically his religious trial. Those were the religious leaders of the day. But what we're studying today, Jesus is taken before Pilate, and this is his Roman trial. It's very early on Friday morning, but we always have to remember everything is happening here in Judea. And Judea at this time is part of the Roman Empire. Judea is considered a province, sort of like a state. It was not uncommon in the Roman Empire for these areas, to, for the people there to be designated as a special ethnic group. And they would have some independence, meaning they could have some religious freedom, and they could even sometimes have some freedom to govern themselves. And we know that Israel experienced much of that freedom. We see uh, the temple system and the Jewish law is in place. We see the Sanhedrin. That was their legal body, and they did address um, civil law from time to time. So they did have the freedom to punish some religious crimes, but they did not have the freedom or authority to order a death sentence. An official declaration of death, that was the right of Rome, not the Israelites. An official designation or an official order for crucifixion, that too could only be ordered by Rome. So they have some independence, but they also have been appointed a governor 
or your translation might call it a procurator. A governor would maintain civil order in these areas. He would try to crush down insurrections. He would make sure the tax revenue continued to flow. And we tend to think of that term governor as an esteemed leader of the state. But we need to know that this position during this time was not an esteemed position. It would be given to a less respected, lower level commander. And that's who Pilate is. He's a low level appointee and his job is to keep the peace in a rabble rousing province full of religious zealots. It would be particularly challenging during this week because so many people have traveled into Judea and Jerusalem. Religious fervor is high. Freedom fervor is high during this time. Pilate has a hard job to do. Pilate and the Jews already have a history of animosity and conflict. He tends to stir them up and agitate them more than he keeps the peace. And Pilate also has a tarnished reputation already among his Roman bosses. It's as if there is an HR file in someone's desk with Pilate's name on it. So knowing that history is really helpful for us to understand this exchange that we'll see between the Jewish leaders and Pilate because it is in every sense a taunting exchange, pretty much nonstop. They're both using each other, but it is a bit of a marriage of convenience. Each side is trying to accomplish their own agenda and they have to do it together. Each side um, will use the other to their benefit. We're gonna see the Jews they need Pilate to order this death sentence for Jesus. To, they want Jesus crucified. And Pilate needs the Jews to cooperate because he needs all this religious fervor to settle down and get quiet so it doesn't attract any attention to him. We're gonna start in John 8, 28, but I'm actually gonna paraphrase these opening verses for you. But John reminds us um, all through this that Jesus is tried before Pilate to fulfill his own words about what kind of death he would die. Jesus spoke regularly in John 4, in John 6, in John 8. Jesus referred to being lifted up for the purpose of saving his own. Jesus knew this was the plan for his life. And then look at John 12, 32. Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. All that is happening here is fulfilling the words Jesus has already spoken. So the charge that the Jews have against Jesus is blasphemy, but they aren't quick to declare that charge here in front of Pilate because Pilate could easily say, that's a religious matter. You go back and handle this your own way. And they don't want that. So he tries to do that in the very first exchange here. He tries to push it back on them and they press a little bit harder. And from the very beginning, what we see is Pilate is holding a political hot potato. And all he wants to do is toss it back to the Jews and get this conflict out of his hands. So he's going to maneuver to try and get this problem to go away here. So he begins by trying to put it back in their hands, but they refuse. So he goes into his headquarters to begin Jesus' Roman trial and questioning. John makes a little jab at the Jewish leadership here where he lets us know they wait outside. They won't go in because they want to be ceremonially clean. 
for a Jewish person to enter a Gentile home would cause them to be defiled. And so John is referencing here their scrupulous effort to satisfy the Jewish law. But the reason he's poking at them here is they're worried about the law about being defiled in a Gentile's home. They've already violated their own law by having an illegal trial at night. They violated their own law by bribing people, and they violated their own law weeks earlier when they determined that they were going to kill an innocent man. So that's where we are in this moment when Pilate goes into his headquarters to interview Jesus. Let's uh, look at this interview beginning in verse 33 of chapter 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Did you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. All right, Pilate has heard multiple complaints about Jesus, but in this exchange, he tends to focus on one thing, Jesus' claim of kingship. Are you the king of the Jews? He's going to ask that over and over and over again, and he's actually going to use that title, king, as a way to taunt the Jews, suggesting, I think, look how powerful your king is. Rome can question him. Rome can detain him. Rome can kill him. This is your king. It's a very, very um, irreverent, taunting exchange that we'll see here. So he asks, are you a king? And Jesus comes back with this probing question. Do you say this of your own accord? I think Jesus is doing what we often see Jesus do by asking a question. He wants to know, Pilate, are you seeking the Messiah? Do you have a spiritual thirst? Are you a seeker? Or are you just trying to figure out if I am a threat to Rome? I see this as Pilate's opportunity for grace. But Pilate makes it very clear he's not looking for the Messiah. Am I a Jew, he answered. He sees himself as the powerful one who can dispose of the Jewish problem. So Jesus goes on to teach him about his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And he's letting Pilate know he's not a threat to the Roman Empire. He's not a threat to any political organization because Jesus' kingdom is not a worldly kingdom. They would not gain power by military might or oppression. That's why Jesus won't let Peter go walking around lopping people's ears off with a sword. This kingdom is not going to come to be by military power. He also says it's not a worldly kingdom that rules with political power. All those things, might, power, politics, those are things of the world, and God's kingdom is not of the world. This would be a very difficult concept for everyone to understand, but Jesus is explaining that the kingdom of God at this time and the kingdom of God as you and I are experiencing it today, it is not a worldly kingdom. It is a spiritual reality. 
We can't see it with our eyes, but we can experience it with our spirit. And the way you enter the kingdom of God begins with an encounter with Jesus and your decision to entrust your life to him. The kingdom is only present when Jesus is present. And that's why he says, all during his ministry, he says, I came to bring the kingdom. The kingdom is Jesus surrounded by people who know him and trust him. It is a spiritual reality. Pilate doesn't understand that, so he repeats the question, so you are a king. And Jesus answers, this is my purpose. I did come from God to bring a kingdom and to reveal truth. And I think the word truth just kind of hangs in the air between Jesus and Pilate for a few moments. It just hangs there. And again, it's an opportunity for grace for Pilate. If he wants to know truth, truth is standing right in front of him. But Pilate smugly replies, what is truth? And he doesn't even wait for an answer. And he's showing us there that his heart is closed to God. And he's also showing us perhaps the window of grace is closing for Pilate. Pilate sacrifices truth in order to take care of a political hot potato. He gives this verdict immediately, I find no guilt in him, meaning he is not a threat to Rome. There is no treasonable offense here. But Pilate wants to appease the Jews. His goal is to get this problem to settle down and for peace to prevail. So he makes a little gamble and he decides um, that he can uh, coerce them into releasing Jesus. He reminds them we have a custom that Rome will release a Jewish person uh, during the Passover, a person who's in Roman custody. Rome would do this as a peace offering, as a friendly gesture between the Jews and the Romans. And here's what Pilate is gambling on here. Do you want the miracle working Jesus out freely walking among your people, your wives and your children? Or do you want the murderer Barabbas walking among your wives and your children? It was a pretty good gamble, but Pilate gambles wrong. The crowd demands the release of Barabbas. And in the book of John, Barabbas is referred to as a robber, but in the other gospels, we know he was more of a political terrorist and he was actually a convicted murderer. So Pilate will make another attempt to settle this situation down and get the hot potato out of his hands. It didn't work to appease the crowd into releasing Jesus. So now he tries to appease the crowd with some of Jesus' blood and his suffering and his humiliation. And so he orders that Jesus would be flogged. And this was a process of um, using a whip that had multiple long leather strands. And those leather strands all had rough bits of bone attached to the end. It was designed to pierce and tear the skin. It was pretty brutal. Pilate orders Jesus flogged. And then the soldiers make a thorny crown and shove it down on Jesus' head. They drape him in a false kingly robe. They strike him, they mock him as the king of the Jews. And in that bloodied, humiliated, beaten state, Pilate brings Jesus out and presents them to the Jewish people. It's very much presenting a caricature of a king, not what Pilate thinks of as a, as a king. And one more time, he claims there's no guilt in him. But this time he refers to Jesus as a man, 
behold the man, and they look at Jesus bloody, mocked, pathetic in appearance, certainly not the image of a powerful king, and certainly not a threat to the mighty Roman Empire. And even in this humiliation, the plan of God foretold in the word of God is playing out. Look at Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Also look at Isaiah 52, 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. It's the will of God being played out in front of them. Look at chapter 19, verse 6. As Jesus is brought out here in this humiliated state, this is their response. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take them yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. All right, we know that the leaders are envious of Jesus' popularity and his following, and we also know they are concerned about maintaining their power and their control under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. And those are the things that motivate them as they stand there in the crowd and shout, crucify. But ultimately, we know it's the will of God playing out here. John tells us that this claim of Jesus to be the Son of God, that it actually struck fear in Pilate. And some of you may recall Matthew gives us an account that Pilate's wife actually had a disturbing dream during this time. And she sends a message to Pilate saying, don't have anything to do with this man. We can't know exactly what kind of fear was stirred up in Pilate, but I do think it's helpful to remember if you weren't a Jewish person, you were part of the pagan culture. And the pagan culture of that day did believe in demigods or these otherworldly type heroic figures. Think Zeus, think Hercules. These demigods who lived in another location and they came down to earth to wreak havoc or they sent thunderbolts from the sky to destroy people. That may have been what triggers his question, where are you from? He's trying to figure out what this man is standing in front of him. And it's curious because so many times before Jesus has openly claimed to be from above. But in this moment with Pilate, he will not answer the question. He will not open his mouth. Listen to this exchange in verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You know, in this little exchange, I just see the pride of life oozing out of Pilate. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I can do to you? It's so prideful that Jesus goes on to explain the only reason Pilate has authority is because God has given him authority. Romans 13.1 lets us know all authority is given from God. God determines who sits in the seats of power. 
God has given Pilate this freedom to defy justice. God has given Pilate the freedom to order the release or the execution of Jesus here. God's plan is moving these events forward, not Pilate's power. Now, Jesus goes on to say, he who delivered me over to you has the higher sin. I think the idea there is the abuse of power will be punished by God. God has given this authority, therefore you are accountable to God for the authority. And there's much speculation, who is Jesus talking about here when he says, he who delivered me over to you? Some think he's talking about Judas who betrayed him. Some think he's referring to the religious leaders, the, the members of the Sanhedrin. We can't know for certain, but I'll just tell you my opinion. I think he's talking about Caiaphas. Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, because he's just said all authority has been given from God and authority is accountable to God. God put Caiaphas in the position of high priest over the nation of Israel. And we just talked about the role of the high priest last week. The high priest was to serve as the mediator between God and man. The high priest was to help teach and instruct the truths of God. The role of high priest had a spiritual purpose, but Caiaphas has perverted that purpose, used it, abused it for his own power and control. I think Caiaphas will stand before God and give an account for this. So Pilate has tried four different times to pitch this hot potato back to the Jews to wash his hands of it. But the Jews are compelled to continue because they are determined that Jesus is going to be crucified. So they pull out the biggest threat of all here in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. The Jews cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. This passage is Pilate's turning point, but he doesn't turn because he has received new, convincing, compelling evidence. He turns because his career is being threatened by the mob. We do have to remember he is a Roman political appointee. He's responsible and answerable to Rome. And what they're saying here is leniency with Jesus is an open threat to Caesar. What does Pilate have to lose if he lands on the wrong side here? If he's accused of disloyalty to Caesar, not only would he lose his position, he could have all of his property confiscated he could be tortured the same way or worse than he's just had Jesus tortured, and he could actually be legally executed for being disloyal to Caesar. And don't you think in this moment, Pilate is remembering that HR file sitting in someone's desk drawer somewhere. Pilate knows he's on thin ice, so he takes his stand here, and he stands for self-preservation over truth and justice 
and Jesus and the will of God. So he brings Jesus out. Pilate sits down on the judgment seat. This would be the place where he would give his formal sentencing. He uses spiteful words to the Jews again. Behold your king, shall I crucify your king? Again, the pride and arrogance is just reeking in that. But the people respond with their own prideful, arrogant words. We have no king but Caesar. Pilate is mocking justice. He has made so many no-guilt statements. He isn't guilty, and yet he's condemning Jesus to death. The Jews are doing something worse. They are mocking God. The nation of Israel was created and instituted by God and intended to be, from the beginning, a theocracy, a nation of people who had God as their king. But here, to satisfy their own agenda, they claim Caesar as their only king instead of God. And Jesus is delivered over to be crucified. So we see that the trial fulfilled the scriptures and the words of God. And next we will see that the actual crucifixion also fulfills the scripture. All continues to go according to God's will. Jesus will carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion and he will be crucified with criminals on each side and Pilate will make one more taunting reference as he puts an inscription on Jesus' cross that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And perhaps he's suggesting, look what Rome can do to your king. We can hang him on a cross and we can kill him. All could read the proclamation. It was written in all the languages of the day. Read with me in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And that lets us know it was an expensive piece of cloth that they didn't want to damage. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. This is scripture that was written hundreds of years earlier, Psalm 22:18. So Jesus is being crucified naked and shamed by the world as he is bearing the sins of the world, and it's going exactly as God foretold. Verse 28, And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. This is actually fulfilling Psalm 69, verse 21. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to Jesus' mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what is finished here? What is finished is the work of redemption, the work that Jesus was sent to do that God had determined from the beginning of time hanging on the cross, being the sin bearer for the world, fulfilled God's will. And now Jesus has completely finished the work. He has completely paid the price that was on every person's head, the price none of us could ever pay for ourselves. It is finished is actually 
three words. That's our English translation. But Jesus spoke one Greek word that means this same thing. And the word has been found on ancient tax documents from that day with printed that word on the bottom of it, suggesting paid in full. Balance owed zero. It is finished. Finished means nothing else need ever be done. The sacrifice is sufficient. Ladies, all of Isaiah 53 prophesies these events. I would suggest you take some meditative, reflective time today or tomorrow and read slowly through all of Isaiah 53. I'm going to share a few lines with you here. We were all like sheep who had gone astray. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins, bearing the punishment in order to bring us peace. He was making a one-time complete offering for guilt, making many righteous. God's plan written hundreds of years before. Having completed the work of redemption, Jesus says, John tells us that Jesus gave up his spirit. And those are such important words because they're letting us know this was a voluntary relinquishment of his life. Jesus was not being murdered by other people. Jesus was relinquishing his light voluntarily. And Jesus also foretold this. Look at John 10, verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He goes on to say, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. We'll see that authority in the next few chapters. So it was the custom of the Romans here to come by after many hours and to break the legs of the criminals who were being crucified if they were still living. And this would speed up their death. They would do this late in the day. So in these last moments on the cross, we're going to see the scriptures continue to be fulfilled. Verse 33 but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it, that's John, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken." And that's the scripture that came from Exodus chapter 12, describing the Passover lamb that would be sacrificed. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. That is a scripture from Zechariah chapter 12. The plans of God explained in the words of God, accomplished through the Son of God, recorded here by John, so you will believe. And next comes Jesus' burial. And I so appreciate that this grisly scene ends with two faithful followers of Jesus showing honor and reverence and respect here. We're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea. He was a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin. He was actually a Sadducee. 
part of this religious leadership we're hearing so much about. But we learn from Luke's account that Joseph did not participate in the vote to have Jesus killed. He was a believer and a follower of Jesus, but he was a secret disciple meaning so fearful of being excommunicated, so fearful of the consequences that he doesn't make his belief public. So we know there was a period here where his fear was really overwhelming his faith. But now his devotion to Jesus and probably his recognition of the will of God playing out here, that overrules his fear. Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and gets permission to properly and respectfully bury Jesus because his, it would further humiliate Jesus if he remained on the cross during the Sabbath. It would further humiliate him if his body weren't appropriately cared for during the Sabbath. So that's what Joseph is doing here. And he actually provides the tomb at his own expense. So I love that we see this formerly secret disciple stepping out into the public eye here and doing something very public and very honorable that was remembered forever, recorded by John. One author says, disciples can't stay secret forever. There comes a moment when we must declare allegiance to our king. This is Joseph's moment in his former agenda of protecting himself. He has uh, submitted that now to God's agenda and God's will. We're told that Nicodemus also joins him. You probably remember Nicodemus from John chapter 3. Nicodemus was also a religious leader in Israel. He was one of the Pharisees, and he came to Jesus at night, definitely suggesting secret believer in Jesus as well. And he expresses, you know, uh, Nicodemus has been watching those miracles so closely. And when he comes to Jesus, he says, I know by the miracles you've done, you must be from God. And Jesus debates him a little bit about you must be born again. And we leave Nicodemus thinking he's pretty confused about what in the world born again means. But Jesus' last word to Nicodemus were, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I think Nicodemus probably saw Jesus' body lifted up on that cross, and I think he vividly remembered these words. So now Nicodemus, too, he comes forward, and he's publicly stepping into a threatening and a dangerous situation, but he's publicly showing honor for Jesus. He brings the very costly items to prepare Jesus' body for burial here. These two men are taking a stand they had been hiding in the shadows, too fearful to publicly acknowledge Jesus, but now they step out of the shadows, and I love it. They have stepped into history's bright, sunny side here. And this, too, is fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah 53 that said Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Look at verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, and as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is a really interesting note, but I think it's so important Jesus did not suffer a prisoner's burial. 
Jesus wasn't casually tossed into the pauper's graveyard. He wasn't thrown into a mass grave. Jesus is fully anointed. He's entombed in a brand new vault, an expensive vault in a beautiful garden setting. And the reason this is so important is because Jesus' suffering and humiliation is completed. That too is finished in this moment. And from here on out, the suffering and humiliation will be no more. His burial also shows the reality of his physical death. And I think it's very similar to Lazarus' burial and lingering in the tomb for several days, proving to the world that he had actually died. But most importantly, the burial sets the stage for the resurrection that is coming. Two things in this trial and death sequence that John really seems to emphasize. The first is the commanding, confident presence of Jesus. He's never rattled. It's the presence of a confident king. The second thing that John emphasizes is the sure and certain plan of God. He's bringing his kingdom and redeeming his people to live with him forever. The scriptures are being fulfilled. And all through this, we also see that individuals have agency. They have the right to act as they please. Their free acts all fit snugly within the plan, the sovereign plan of God. They're like actors on the scene, and God lets them choose the part they will play. He lets them choose where they will stand. And so we can see pretty clearly some stand out front scheming and manipulating to protect their power and control. We see one stand reluctantly trying to duck out and ultimately he stands for self-preservation. We see some lurking in the shadows, afraid to show allegiance to the king until they boldly move to the forefront. Every single person had a choice but their choice did absolutely nothing to alter the plans of God. Their choice just determined how they would experience those plans because the plans of God are good for those who stand with God. His plans are sure and certain and his plans are good if we will stand with him. He will let you stand opposed to his plans, but it's sort of like boxing in the wind. It just wears you out and it produces nothing good. So today, what are we to do with this passage, this episode in Jesus' life? I think whenever we study Jesus on the cross, the obvious response is believe. Believe, believe, believe. See the love and mercy of God who sent a holy son to be a sacrifice to pay our penalty. Believe, believe and receive forgiveness of your sins. Believe and enter the kingdom of God even though it's invisible. Believe and live with hope that you are knit together in a relationship with God forever. Believe. And then what next? For those of us who have already believed, there's a lot we can learn from this passage as well. What I learn, there are so many ways to resist the will of God. There are so many ways we can do that, and I am capable of doing any of these things. We all have personal agendas, and we're all capable of putting our agenda above God's will and God's plan. Think about this. If the will of God does something uncomfortable to me, I might resist it. 
That means my agenda is self-protection. If the will of God costs me status or relevance, I will resist it. That means my agenda is power and control. If the will of God embarrasses me or excludes me from others, I might resist it. That means my agenda is popularity. Whenever those things become our primary agenda, we are resisting the agenda of God. As I thought about this, I recognized an agenda in my life that I don't see in this passage. Sometimes I have trouble accepting the plans of God simply because they're unexpected or unwanted. God takes a turn when I expected him to go straight. You see, I'm a planner. I've always been a planner, and I know that sometimes my plan can become my agenda. And I don't plan because I love administrative details. I plan because I don't like to experience chaos. I don't like feeling like the rug has been pulled out from under me. So I line up all my events in a straight line moving to a fixed point, and I don't want anyone putting a curve in there. That's just who I am. But the plans of God stand firm forever, and the plans of God are good plans when we stand with him. Ecclesiastes 7.13 says, Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. God shared a little joke with me this week. Early one morning I was getting ready, doing what I do every morning, trying to create some order from the chaos that grows out of my head. I was thinking about this passage and I was thinking about this verse. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? And I just stood in my bathroom and laughed for a little bit and realized God has given me a built-in visual aid reminding me every single day I cannot fight the curves, the turns, the corkscrews that he brings into my life. If it is his will, it is a good plan. So our job is not to resist the plans of God. And we know what God's plans are for us today. Today we live in the invisible kingdom of God, but one day Jesus is coming back. God's plan will be completed and his kingdom will be visible and everyone will see it. But right now, while we wait, God has told us what his plan is. His plan is that each and every day your heart is being more and more transformed to look like Jesus. God's heart is that each and every day we move through the world like a walking modern miracle, showing the world Jesus redeems sinful, broken things. So our job while we wait is to want God's plan more than self-preservation, more than power and control, more than popularity. You fill in the blank with whatever your agenda might be. Our plan is to want God's plan to ask for wisdom, to discern God's plan, and when his plan takes an unexpected turn, to be ready to stand with God in the light because the plans of God stand firm forever. This chapter closes, it's sundown, the sky is growing dark, and the day is closing. It's the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath, and redemption's price has been paid in full according to the will of God. And at the close of this chapter, the stage is set for the glory and majesty and wonder of resurrection. Let's pray. 
God, your goodness to us is beyond what we can imagine. Thank you. Thank you for wanting us to be in fellowship with you. Thank you for sending Jesus and making a way for us to do that. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you from full hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.